1: Happy Thursday. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy in talk radio of for and by you, the people. Live on the radio nationwide, streaming live throughout the world on the World Wide Web. Check it out. Leslie Marshall forward slash stream. Keep in mind, we stream live when we broadcast live Monday through Friday, four to six p.m. Eastern. Hence it being called a live stream coming up in this hour. We have a doctor joining us who is a behavioral specialist. I heard his series. I was quite intrigued by it. For those of you who are parents or, uh, no kids or are teachers and work with kids. I think you'll find this a very interesting hour. And you might say, What about the politics? We're going to get to that. We're going to talk about the Syrian refugee and whose responsibility these Syrian refugees are. And they're not just Syrian refugees, Iraqi refugees and other places who are fleeing the violence in their um, not just war torn but uh, oppressive and uh, terrorist. Uh, Written nations also talk radio news service coming up later in the hour but right now let's check a little thing called ripped no okay uh we're gonna do rip in the headlines i guess no sound effects today uh let's start out with senate democrats oh okay i Oh, okay. I didn't know. I didn't know that we were having the guest for the full hour, guys. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. I mentioned Dr. Ross W. Green. He is uh, going to be with us the full hour today. The originator of the collaborative and proactive solutions, CPS approach, formerly known as collaborative problem solving, as described in his influential books, quote, lost at school and the explosive child. This is the series I was talking about, a new approach for understanding and parenting easily frustrated, chronically inflexible children. Most people might say, we all have one of those. Uh, And uh, both of those are available at Amazon.com. He is also the founding director of the nonprofit Lives in Balance that provides a vast array of free web-based resources on his model and advocates on behalf of... Of behaviorally challenging kids and their parents, teachers, and other caregivers. More than a pleasure to have with us Dr. Ross W. Green. Uh, Dr. Green, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon and welcome.
2: Same to you. My pleasure.
1: Uh, Dr. Green, I have two kids seven year old, eight year old. Seven year old's the perfect child, eight year old's the, the troubled child. And one of the reasons we asked you to be on is uh, being that I am on national radio, being that I am on national television, and that I write a column for the Huffington Post. I get people who send me the craziest things, and a lot of them, very self-revealing, a lot of people know that I have two just-started-today-second-grade kids, and I get questions that are completely outside the realm of my area of knowledge or expertise, and I get a lot of people who will write uh, to me uh, in letters or send emails, tweet me or FB me, um, situations regarding kids, and in researching to help provide answers and to do a show on this, I came across something that I actually as a parent started to enjoy and to uh, listen to the lessons and the teachings of, and that was your uh, series, The Explosive Child, A New Approach for Understanding and Parenting Easily Frustrated, Chronically Inflexible uh, Children. So first of all, I just want to thank you for being with us and thank you uh, for writing that. Um, Dr. Green, is, is it, first of all, there. Are, I've had somebody ask me, is there really such thing as a bad seed. I think many of us remember the movie and the book from years back turned into a a play and, you know, made-for-TV movie as well. But, Dr. Green, are there bad seeds, really, or are just, you know, all these kids' seeds and some just aren't watered properly?
2: Well, you know, I've never referred to a kid as a bad seed, though I know that that's terminology that is sometimes used. I think that there are kids who come into this world more challenging And more temperamentally difficult than others. Um, And, of course, even that is nature and nurture in combination. But it's how we caregivers take it from there that decide what that uh, seed is going to blossom into, good or bad. Um, So we're right there in the mix.
1: When you talk about nature and nurture combination, um, I, I fully know what you mean. But for those who may not and, and understand, before we get to what do we do now, any of us who have a child like this uh, that that are you know challenging, they're inflexible, uh, they're frustrating um, as as children. There's frustration within themselves and frustrating for uh, those of us to parent or those teachers to teach. Uh, let's start uh, back. Um, genetic, environmental. What plays into this nurture in nature, and are there, you know, not necessarily exact percentages, but, you know, how much, for example, comes from genetics versus the environment they're in and the the, and the way they are raised, the uh, the teachers and the parents they come into contact with?
2: Well, I'm going to give you the answer I always give. Everything's 100% nature and 100% nurture. <laughs> and it really is kind of, it's not the best use of, the time of people who are trying to help these kids or figure out what's getting in their way to try to come up with a precise determination about whether what's getting in a kid's way is nature or nurture. Often we can't do a whole lot about nature or nurture. We certainly can't get a precise percentage on how much of this kid's difficulties are nature or nurture. I find it's a whole lot easier to just say it's 100% of both um, and focus on the important stuff, which is the kid's skills and the expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting. Those are much more productive things for caregivers to focus on than what percentage of this kid is made up by nature and nurture, something, once again, we can never determine with great precision.
1: For, for people out there, you know, whether they're grandparents, their parents, uh, they babysit kids, they have nieces and nephews, they're teachers – When when a kid screams or swears or cries or hits or hits or spits or bites, some people would just say – Oh, that, that's just a kid. They're just having a bad day. Or it's the terrible twos. And, you know, I know there are parents out there. There was a lady that wrote me a letter. I have to laugh. She said, Leslie, I thought it was the terrible. Have you been through this? I thought it was the terrible twos. Then it became the terrible threes. Now he's nine. When does the terrible stop? Uh, but but is it just a phase in an age for some kids, actually? You know, that, uh, that time of um, uh, rebellion, if you will. And uh, of that explosive situation for some kids are perfect until they're teenagers is an example.
2: Well, you know, I don't think that rebellion is something that is definitely going to occur in a kid. I find that kids, quote unquote, rebel. I call it looking bad. Um, I call it exhibit challenging behavior when certain expectations are placed upon them that they're having difficulty meeting. And there are certainly Certain uh, ages at which um, we expect certain skills to develop in kids, the, the prototypical one is that around at the age of two we expect language to develop uh, earlier in a lot of kids, but sometimes later, and we start placing expectations on kids at various points in development based on skills we believe that they should have at that point. And we're going to see challenging behavior almost exclusively when we are placing demands and expectations on a kid and the kid doesn't have the skills to respond adaptively to those demands and that can occur at any point in development there are many kids that i've worked with um... who are described as having been angelic up until around the age of you know four or five and then the demands being placed upon them started to exceed their capacity to respond adaptively and they started looking bad So i don't think rebellion is a given in any kid I do think that there's a lot of kids out there who at various points in development don't develop the skills that they need. And the skills I usually talk about are flexibility, adaptability, frustration tolerance, and problem solving. Those are sort of the global skills I see compromised most often in kids who are exhibiting challenging behavior. Um, But I view behavior as simply the signal. It's simply the fever, if you will, It's the manner in which the kid is communicating. Um, I'm having difficulty meeting these expectations, and this is my best shot at letting you know that.
1: My husband's an orthopedic surgeon, and he is very, very uh, critical of people in his profession. And he loved uh, the Explosive Child because I actually, um, you know, I was reading it. I give it to him, and he hardly reads anything that's not orthopedics or music uh, related. And and he just loved it. So that's honestly, um, definitely a feather in your cap because he's very critical, <laughs> very critical, especially of people in your field. Before we talk more about the Explosive Child, about these children, about you know parents who are frustrated, and there are so many. You can Google just pages and pages of people who are constantly asking questions, or like, hello, am I alone out there? Uh, Dr. Green, why did this become an area of interest to you? I mean, I would imagine that, you know, fresh out of school, um, or maybe you did fresh out of school decide that you wanted to work with with children, but why behavior and and why uh, bad behavior? Did you have a personal experience with it as well?
2: Well, I did not have a personal experience with it sort of as a kid or in my family, but as a young clinician in training, I began to notice that number one, these are the kids who frequently other people don't really want to work with. These are kids who frequently are on the receiving end of our most punitive interventions. Those punitive interventions frequently don't work, um, sometimes make things worse. And there's something going on here that we seem to be missing. And, you know, mental health, like medicine, like education, like parenting, is one of the helping professions. So it was a bit of a concern to me that I was finding that there, were, there was advice I was dispensing to teachers and to parents that wasn't helping. It's not, not why I got into this business. And so it prompted me to go back to the drawing board and ask myself a few questions. Why are the things we typically do to behaviorally challenging kids so frequently not working with them for them and sometimes making things worse? And number two, uh, should we be doing things differently? And um, my answer to question number one, why uh, are a lot of the conventional strategies not working, is because those conventional strategies, whether we're talking about stickers or points or timeouts, or in schools, uh, expulsions, suspensions, detentions, which we still do millions of times every year, paddling, which we still do in 19 states, 230,000 times every year here in the United States of America. Um, What they don't do is they don't teach kids the skills they're lacking, and they don't solve the problems that are causing the challenging behaviors that everybody's so worried about. And so what I did is I started moving away from focusing on behaviors and modifying them and toward the problems that are causing those behaviors and engaging kids collaboratively as a partnership in solving them. And i got to tell you, I have found that it works a whole lot better for me and a whole lot better for a lot of the families and schools and juvenile detention facilities and inpatient units and residential facilities that have implemented the collaborative and proactive solutions approach.
1: We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with our guest. We'll be back with you. I see some folks holding. If you want to join us and you have a question for Dr. Ross Green, the originator of the Collaborative and Proactive Solutions Approach, CPS, formerly known as Collaborative Problem Solving, the author of The Explosive Child, A New Approach for Understanding and Parenting Easily Frustrated, Chronically Inflexible Children. Pick up the phone and join us, 8886 Leslie. 888 888-653-7543. You can share your tweets as well. Follow me on Twitter, at Leslie Marshall. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to Dr. Dr. Green right after this. By the way, in the break, you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Ross Green. And the website is livesinthebalance.org. We'll talk with him about Lives in the Balance. We'll talk with him about these children. And we'll talk to him about those explosive kids, but more so the collaborative problem solving right after this. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't go away. Call us 8886-LESLIE-TWEET at Leslie Marshall. We'll be back.
0: Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Give her a call now at 888 6 Leslie. Leslie Marshall. The Simple Truth in a Complicated World. Give her a call now at 888 6 Leslie.
1: We're back. Dr. Ross W. Green, originator of the Collaborative and Proactive Solutions Approach, formerly known as Collaborative Problem Solving, is our guest. Like I said, he's author of The Explosive Child, a new approach for understanding and parenting easily frustrated, chronically inflexible children. Uh, we are going to take calls in just a few moments. We're coming uh, close to our second break, as this is the shorter segment in this hour, as everyone knows who listens. 8886 Leslie is uh, the number. Dr. Green, there are people out there who use timeout. There are people out there who have that spare the rod, spoil the child mentality. There are those that let kids do whatever they want. You know, they take, you know, take the crayons, take the paint, you know, paint all over the wall, be expressive. You know, do, you know, you're just becoming who you are. Uh, there are those that try talking. There are those that try taking things away. I think I saw something on Dr. Phil once where they said, take everything but the mattress out of the room. And I, as a mom had a good chuckle about that one. Um, Is there, you know, you have something that deals with like, you know, ABC in a sense, right? And is it that simple in the sense that, you know, we as human beings and children being part of the human race can be broken down into categories with which the way we interact or react to explosive children can really be broken down into one, two, or three approaches?
2: Well, um, it's not just explosive or behaviorally challenging children that these three options I've been describing for a very long time apply. It's any old kid. Those three options that I call plan A, plan B, and plan C not only apply to adult-child interactions, they apply to how adults solve problems with each other. They apply to how Kids solve problems with each other, and they apply to how nations solve problems with nations. And since we're staying away from politics here, I won't say that it's how Democrats and Republicans solve problems with each other. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) Um, Well, Plan A is where one party, and not, not like Democrat or Republican, just one individual or group, is imposing its will on another. It's where... In adults and kids, it's where the adult is deciding what the solution to a problem is and imposing it on the kid. Now, in behaviorally challenging kids, that is a very good way to set in motion a challenging episode, whatever you want to call them, meltdown, explosion. Plan A, if you rewind the tape on the vast majority of challenging episodes in challenging kids, you'll find an adult using Plan A unilaterally imposing a solution to a problem, to an unmet expectation. Plan B is where you're also trying to solve the problem, but instead of doing it unilaterally, you're doing it collaboratively. This is an adult-child partnership. It's not only being done collaboratively, it's being done proactively, because the vast majority of expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting are predictable. We, we know what they are three weeks ago, so there's really no reason for caregivers to be responding in the heat of the moment. And Plan C refers to. Well, hold that thought, Dr.
1: Green, hold plan C because we're going to take a break and I want people to get the full plan C without interruption. We're going to take a break. We will be back to our guest and to you. I know you're holding. Hang tight. If you want to join us, you're a parent. You have one of these explosive children. You're a teacher. You have a question for Dr. Green. Now is the time to call 8886 Leslie 888 7543 on Twitter at Leslie Marshall. Tweet me there back after this.
0: leslie marshall when the truth matters give her a call now at 888-6leslie
1: Leslie Marshall here. You know, when you eat too much, eat the wrong foods, even sleep in the wrong position, you can get an upset stomach. Experts say that nearly all of us eventually will develop some sort of digestive problem, and that's because as we age, our stomachs produce less of the enzymes needed to break down food. So do what I do when I have that queasy, uneasy, refluxy feeling. Take a Gutsy Chewy tablet. Gutsy Chewy is an oral and digestive supplement, and best of all, 100% natural. Gutsy Chewies were invented by Dr. Doug Hagigi. He's a gastroenterologist and a dentist, and he blended natural heartburn remedies like papaya, licorice root, and apple cider vinegar, and then he added calcium, magnesium, and xylitol for oral health as well. When you put all those things together, they boost the body's natural defense against heartburn and reflux. Gutsy Chewies are gluten and lactose free they come in citrus and wild berry flavors so when you like me get that uneasy queasy refluxy feeling just take a gutsy chewy tablet you'll feel better at a 100% natural it's better for your health learn more at gutsyproducts.com or call 855 go GUTSY. that's 855-484-8879 that's gutsyproducts.com Talking with our guest in this hour, Dr. Ross W. Green. As I said, he is author of The Explosive Child, A New Approach for Understanding and Parenting Easily Frustrated, Chronically Inflexible Children. Dr. Green, thank you for holding. Welcome back. You are about to describe uh, the third uh, aspect, which is uh, C, in uh, the way we respond to and react to, and one of the choices, uh, these types of explosive easily uh, uh, frustrating to parents. These children are very explosive.
2: Yeah, Plan C is just is what we might call the prioritizing plan. In behaviorally challenging kids, there are frequently so many unmet expectations that have piled up over the years that we're not going to be able to work on them all at once, and we're going to have to remove some of them from the kids' radar screen until we get some of the higher priorities solved. So Plan C are the unsolved problems, as I call them, or unmet expectations. We are just setting aside for now not giving in, not capitulating, consciously setting aside as an act of prioritizing. So you were describing some different types of parents before I started talking about the plans. There are parents who do not try to exert influence over their kids and just let their kids go. Those parents are doing way too much plan C. There are parents who often fall into the spare the rod and spoil the child category those parents are often doing way too much Plan A, and if they are not sparing the rod, then they are using a very damaging form of Plan A, as the research tells us. And the form of problem-solving that I'm always advocating for and trying to help caregivers get good at is Plan B. And once again, That's where you're still solving the problem. Any problem that you can solve unilaterally, you can also solve collaboratively. But there are some major advantages to doing it collaboratively. This is a partnership between parent and child or teacher and student. It's collaborative. It's proactive. Kids learn skills that way. Caregivers learn skills that way. Relationships improve. Communication is enhanced. Um, this is not an advertisement. This is just what the data tell us about what happens when adults start solving problems collaboratively with kids.
1: For people, there are many people uh, listening, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, uh, worldwide and I know there are people out there saying, Okay, Doctor, you know, this sounds great. There are some people that like my husband, I've listened to Explosive Child on tape, by the way. You do a great job reading it. It's not easy, I know, being a broadcaster. <laughs> and well edited. Uh, and um, you know, some people, you know, read the book and some people for the first time are hearing about you and hearing about this. But anybody who's a parent, I think, has a the time they're frustrated with a child or children and their behavior. And some people might say, Well, Doctor Green, I'm listening to you and I understand and I would like to be a type B parent, but it just doesn't seem realistic or in the moment when uh, we, as my best friend who is British, says lose the plot, and you, you know, and kids really, you know, some of them especially, can, some children more than others can push parents' buttons, whether it be a mom, a dad, or both. And get us into that space of that zone where we don't – we're acting differently than we normally do, whether it's we're screaming or, you know, we're swearing or we're saying, you know, mean things that we wouldn't normally say or making threats we really know we're never going to follow through on. But what do you say to parents who would say to you, Dr. Green, that, that sounds awesome and I can do that, but I don't think I could do that 100% of the time because there are just times where I lose, you know, blow my top.
2: I'll take 95%. But here's the deal. Um, a lot of those parents aren't doing 95% proactive and collaborative uh, solving of problems with their kids. They're doing predominantly heat of the moment, unilateral intervention, when they're already very late in the game. I I like your um, British friends um, losing the plot theme, because Um, the plot that is frequently getting lost, the expectations that the kid is having difficulty meeting, it's like going to the same Broadway show 50 consecutive times. These are very predictable unsolved problems. So this is really the, the hard part about this model. Yes, a lot of adults haven't had a lot of practice at solving problems collaboratively because they were raised under the unilateral approach. But one of the hardest parts of this is just organizing the effort and making a list of all the expectations a child is having difficulty meeting so that 99% of intervention can be proactive. And then the only – so that's huge because otherwise we end up responding in the heat of the moment chronically, and when we're responding chronically in the heat of the moment, no problems get solved. We end up just dealing with the same ones day after day. Um But it also helps us. It's very hard to solve a problem collaboratively in the heat of the moment. So it's better to do it proactively. And that list of unmet expectations and prioritizing which ones we want to start working on first, that really helps us get organized. And a lot of parents and teachers really never think that they've got to organize approach to discipline. But the reality is You need to organize your approach to discipline because, believe it or not, all of that heat-of-the-moment intervention actually takes a lot longer, a lot more time than solving problems collaboratively and proactively. Organization's a huge piece of this.
1: Well, I'm uh, organizing maven, you know, so uh, I should be able to do this well. (laughs) You know, Dr. Green, and you know this, there are a lot of people that have script pads ready to write a script for medication for our children, whether it be Ritalin. Etc. There are numerous labels. Occupation. uh, uh, What is occupational defiance disorder?
2: uh, Oppositional.
1: Oppositional defiance. Defiance 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 disorder. Um, Certainly ADHD, um, dyslexia, autism, and a spectrum. Uh, In your professional opinion, are some of these children who are explosive being misdiagnosed or being given a label? and really should not be?
2: Well, psychiatric diagnoses are basically long lists of behaviors. It's really all they are. Anybody can look them up by Googling them, and what you'll see for every diagnostic label that is applied to children are the behaviors that typify that diagnosis. And so so it's really kind of redundant to talk about both the behavior and the diagnosis, because all the diagnosis is is a label that summarizes certain behaviors that are thought to cluster together. So if there are kids who are exhibiting those behaviors, then it's easy to hang a label on them. The big question is whether the label actually tells you anything. And my belief, um, and I've been in this profession a long time, is that the disorder, the psychiatric disorder actually tells you virtually nothing about what skills this kid is lacking, which are much more important, and what expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting, which are much more important. So if you tell me, a kid has been diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder. I don't know anything about his lagging skills. I don't know anything about the expectations he's having difficulty meeting. And I would say that about every childhood psychiatric, this, virtually every childhood psychiatric disorder. So, are we overdiagnosing? I don't know. I, I think that we are overemphasizing diagnoses in the belief that they actually provide some something informative about these kids. And I think that they often don't. So, believe it or not. I basically spend virtually no time on talking about psychiatric disorders, whether I'm speaking publicly or working with an individual kid. doesn't matter what the setting is. The real focal point needs to be what skills is this kid lacking? What expectations is the kid having difficulty meeting? You know that stuff. You know everything you need to know about this kid.
1: Are there some common uh, denominators, would you say, in explosive children? Uh, For example... Uh, With my son, he explodes when he doesn't get his way. And I would say nearly 100% of the time. How much of the explosion varies, I think, depending on how tired he is. You know, fatigue plays into it. Um, uh, Not the setting because he pretty much, you know, loses it at home more than any other place. Uh, You know, so, you know, is that a trigger for most children or are there common triggers like not getting their
2: own way? Well, Not getting their own way usually has a companion to it. And that is, on the other end of that interaction, on the other end of that power struggle, if you will, is usually an adult. And that adult wants their own way. And so it's not just the kid who wants their way. It's the adult who wants their way. And, you know, depending on how you think about that, um, well, the adult is the one who has the power, and so the adult should get their way. And you can get away with that with many kids. With the exploding variety of kid, imposing your will on that kid is actually what most frequently precipitates explosions. So that might actually not be the best strategy. I personally don't think I would go with power as the best way to um, parent or teach a kid in the first place, but you pay an especially heavy price for going that route when you're doing it with an explosive kid. But whenever parents tell me that, uh, he just wants his own way, and that's that's like one of the prototypical um, descriptions of the kids that I work with, I'm asking a very simple question, like over what? And then they start giving me the expectations, of the kid difficulty meeting. Well, he wants to have his own way by watching TV 10 minutes longer after we call him in for dinner. All right, now I'm going to reword that into an unmet expectation. So are you telling me that he's having difficulty turning off the TV to come in for dinner? Yes. Good. We've now just moved this way outside the realm of him just wanting his own way, which is not specific enough. And we now have a problem, difficulty, turning off the TV to come in to dinner that we can work on with that kid as partners and collaboratively so we can come up with a solution that not only addresses the adult's concerns but also addresses the kid's concerns. No power, no power struggle, no conflict. Once you have a mutually satisfactory solution in place.
1: What uh, we're going to take a break when we come back to Act Green. I have some questions. We have some calls. We have some tweets. God, this hour is flying. <laughs> I'm glad we have you for the whole hour. We'll be back with our guest and with you. Questions: eight 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 six. Leslie, getting to your calls and your tweets right after this. Don't go away.
0: Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall show. Give her a call now at 888-6-Leslie.
1: Back with our guest, Dr. Green. Dr. Green, thank you for holding. A welcome back, and uh, we let's take some calls. We go to the Bronx in New York on line three first with Michael. Michael, good afternoon. Question or comment for our guest?
3: Hello, Leslie. And hello, Dr. Green. Um, very important question. When you talk about organizational um, discipline and the explosive child, all right? Um, is it not true that some of the um, some of the research of a child exploding or behaving negatively is due to the adults that that child is surrounded with and easily influenced by, and not always necessarily in the home either. If a child is out in the street and there are adults acting up and swearing, the child will pick up on that. If a child is at school, and as we've seen news reports of um, school personnel or teachers, bullying children and even getting in physical abuse, the child picks up on that and is learning that is that acceptable behavior. The same way if a child sees a police officer um, beating down somebody or even those, um, a guy beating down a woman. These, these are behaviors that are taught to a child. So isn't, isn't it true that a parent, if the negativity is not coming from the home, Shouldn't the parent be investigating as to A, where did the child learn this kind of behavior from? And B, shouldn't it be a lesson to all of us that the negative behavior of the child does not always come from the home?
1: Dr. Green?
2: Well, there's lots of models for kids out there. There's a ton of exposure to things on TV. There's parents, there's teachers, there's peers. Kids are exposed to lots of different behaviors. Um, I find that every kid I've worked with, the thousands of kids I've worked with over the last 25 to 30 years, every single one of them knew what the expectations were. Every one of them knew what behaviors were okay and what behaviors weren't okay. So there's no question adults can have a very powerful impact on a kid's life not especially in the type of modeling they provide, but also in terms of how the adult responds to behaviors when the kid is letting us know that they're having difficulty meeting an expectation. But it's important to return to an earlier theme, and that is um, it's 100% nature and 100% nurture. So if we're only pointing at the environment, we are in a 100% nurture mode, and that is never a sufficient explanation for anything. And here's the, most, here's the most simple way that I can put it. Lots of families that I work with who parents swore like sailors, and the kids didn't swear at all. So you have kids who are exposed to all kinds of things, um, all kinds of influences on kids' lives. I find that the key determinant in terms of whether a kid is going to re- behave adaptively in response to demands of the environment or maladaptively Still comes down to skills, given that there are many influences in a kid's life, not just parents or teachers.
1: Michael, I hope that answers your question. Thank you once again. Our guest will be with us just until the top of the hour. I'll give us a buzz: eight 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 six. Leslie eight 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 six five three seven five four three is uh, the number. Um, I did have somebody who emailed me named Sheila, who was referring to and I'm going to condense it because it was a rather lengthy email. Um, she said that her question has to do with what you were talking about before the past break with the child who's watching television for 10 more minutes. And mm-hmm. you say you address the problem and then you can work on that problem uh, with that child. Uh, there were two things she pointed out. One, she said it would be exhausting with the number of things, the number of 10-minute intervals that you know she goes through with her child. She doesn't indicate son or daughter. And then two, what if you do that but then – it continues to happen over and over. In other words, the child just doesn't seem to care, even if you and the child have reached some kind of an agreement, a resolution, and, and the next day either they act like they've forgotten or just once again want to do what they damn
2: well please. Well, let's talk about the second part first. I don't come across any kids who don't care when a solution doesn't work. When a solution doesn't work and it has been arrived at collaboratively, then it's both the kid and the adult who have agreed on the solution. So that's not a sign that the kid doesn't care to implement, to to follow through on the solution. Actually, there's many instances in which adults are not following through on the solution, but that just tells us that that's not going to be a realistic solution and that we have to come up with a solution that's realistic, but it is by no means an indication that the kid just wants to do what he wants to do or doesn't care about working with you. There are kids out there who have stopped apparently caring, but I, find, I come across a lot of those in like juvenile detention facilities and inpatient psychiatry units and residential facilities, but what I find about those kids is that they've been so overcorrected and so overdirected and so overpunished for such a long time, they've actually given up on us adults, and they don't really see the point in collaborating with us. I find that even those kids come around, as it relates to the first part, um, there's a good reason that it feels like it would be exhausting to work on all of those unmet expectations, and that's because they've piled up. All Whatever manner in which those the parent was trying to get those expectations met didn't work. So those problems are still unsolved. And I work with families and kids in school who have, believe it or not, accumulated 40 to 50 different unsolved problems. That's always a sign that the way we've been trying to solve those problems hasn't been working. And we're just going to have to go at it, chip away at it, two or three at a time, until we can get on top of a lot of those unsolved problems. It does take time in the beginning, but what is the common refrain from people who've been implementing this model for three or four months is plan B saves time. Wow. Okay.
1: Well, speaking of time, we are out of time. But Dr. Green, uh, you were great. I, I'd like to have you on again in the future. I uh, thank you for being with us. And folks, I know there are a lot of, you know, so many of you that listen and don't get the chance to call in, whether you're at work or you're uncomfortable calling in, especially asking a question maybe about your child, your grandchild, your niece, or nephew. So go to the website org. On Twitter, Dr. Ross Green can be found at Dr. Ross Green, R-O-S-S-G-R-E-E-N-E. Coming up... Just you and me, we're talking Syrian and Iraqi refugees. Don't go away.